Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on this episode of Fan of History. Hello, Dan. Hello, Bernie. Soon we'll get to the 630s BC, but we have four subjects left that we want to talk about to give you this picture of what life was like in the Assyrian Empire. And it's good stuff, so I think it's worth it. Yes, it's important stuff as well. I'm going to talk about economy, trading, and hunting. Nice. And you will talk about something very different. I'm going to talk about the intelligence services. That will definitely be a separate episode, but uh, so that will be coming up shortly. But we'll see how much I manage to talk about my three subjects. Sounds good to me. So what's the first one? The economy, I think, right? Yes. Remember that we have described the Assyrians from the very start as part warriors and part traders. Mm -hmm. They do love to trade and they were forced to trade from the earliest times, from the very beginning, because the Assyrian heartland has or had no natural resources. Right. Except when they managed to find resources that became <laughs> useful later, such as iron. But it's, it's quite funny because today it's one of the world's greatest oil fields. Right. But they had no use for petroleum. Right, that's so funny when you think about it. So trading was a part of the Assyrians' life from the very beginning. Uh, Speaking of of the economy, it is, of course, very different when the Assyrian Empire is small and when the Empire is big. But there is a central heartland economy that is always there. Mm -hmm. And it's based on agriculture, animal husbandry, and trade. Mm Mm-hmm. The southern border of the Assyrian heartland is interesting, close to the city of Asher, because that's also the southern limit of dependable annual rainfall. Right. So the Babylonian desert begins somewhat south of Asher. Right. And the Babylonian desert is more profitable than the Assyrian heartland, but it requires artificial irrigation. Mm-hmm. Which can be easily destroyed by the Assyrians. <laughs> or the storm god. Or anyone that doesn't like the inhabitants. But the Assyrian heartland is more robust and it's easier to, to make your food there. And be sure that you have your food when you need it. Right. More of a Mediterranean climate. They're also located on the, you know, the start of the rivers there. So that's another reason that I imagine they became traders. 
It's also quite uh, well located if you want to start an empire because you can conquer stuff in all directions. Exactly. That's a real good point. But I think it is uh, one of the reasons the Assyrians are so tough to deal with because they live in this rather nice place which borders so many different regions. So everybody wanted their area, but they kept it for a very long time. They did. Amazing that they did in that, you know, a lot of countries that are located in areas that are don't have a lot of natural resources and natural defenses end up not lasting that long. This, of course, also happened for this area many, many hundreds of years after the Assyrians are gone as well. Of course. Or the empire is gone, at least. Of course. Yeah, good way to rephrase that. It's um probably one of the reasons they were so militant. It kind of had to be. So we have the, the main cereal they grow is barley. They have some wheat and some emmer. Is that the right pronunciation? Yeah, I think it's emmer wheat, yeah. Kind of wheat. So barley they use for bread. They grow sesame for oil and flax for linen. Mm-hmm. And of course they have beer. Thank for God. Wherever there's bread, there's beer. That's true. <laughs> they also have uh, vineyards uh, and they, they make wine. But w- the vineyards are located more in the mountains. Uh, I don't think they were known for the best wine, or at least, you know, like most places, people want to get wine from far away. I, I, I do recall that the, 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 tre- the prized wine was from the Levant. Mm, I, I can believe that. I would imagine that the Assyrians made, like, good enough wine. Right. Remember the story about the Celts invading Rome because somebody traded them Roman wine. <laughs> I didn't remember that. <laughs> it's when the Celts invade and uh, sack Rome in 390 BC. One of the reasons were that, one of the legends is that the reason was that they got some wine and said, we want a lot more of this, let's invade them. <laughs> That's great. We have uh, orchards and gardens. From them we get a lot of fruit, nuts, leeks, onions yeah. and cress. Do you know what cress is? I think, like, I think of like watercress as like sort of like a lettuce type of thing. Oh, krasse in Swedish. Yeah, I know okay. what it is. Uh, of course, we, they use a lot of animals. Uh, most of the animals were cattle, sheep, goats, donkeys, mules, and a lot of birds. For example, ducks. But if you remember the menu from the greatest party of all time, that included mm-hmm. a lot of birds. So they did they they harvest they they like what was the word I'm looking for? They domesticated them. Oh yes, they did. This is uh, close to the area where domestication started many many thousands of years before, and so they are master domesticators. Gotcha. They get a lot of eggs. They get milk oh, from yeah. goats mainly, including butter and cheese, and of course they get wool from sheep. Much everything we have, just a couple of different, you know. And uh, for beasts of burden, you use mainly donkeys, mules, and maybe cattle. But not really horses, because all the horses are needed for war, yes. Yeah, it's like you don't use a tank to plow a field. <laughs> uh, of course, you also get meat from the animals, but that is not not that common. Right, it's not like today where people just eat meat all the time. No, meat is way too expensive. Absolutely, they give it to the gods first. There is a lot of uh, shepherds with flocks, and they are working on a contract basis. So they get a fixed portion of the flock's yield 
and give the oh. rest to the the owner of the flock. Gotcha. I, I read it. I saw a thing where you know we think of shepherds as like a meek little guy with this, but shepherds were actually like lumberjacks in the ancient day. They were like really tough guys. They had to fight wolves and lions and keep their sheep from getting, you know, and Arameans. And Arameans, unless you were one. <laughs> in uh, this period, at the end of the Neo-Syrian Empire, the state is keeping a register of all animals, and you're taxed for them. Oh. I, I don't know how well it worked, but... I mean, yeah, I know, it, right? I mean, like, how do you... If the sheep has more babies, and you hide one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no sheep over there. We have them hit. Nope, still only have eight sheep. Uh, so then... We don't have money, as we have mentioned so many times. We are getting close to the invention right. of coins, but there are no coins yet. So wealth is mainly uh, animals and land. Mm-hmm. Of course, land is like the paragon of wealth, the epitome of wealth. If you're a landowner, you're wealthy. Right, even today. But in theory, all land controlled by the Assyrian Empire belonged to Asher. Everything belongs to Asher. And, of course, Asher's representative, the king. Convenient. This uh, is, of course, not what it was really like. So, in practice, the state owned some land, but the remainder were held by wealthy families, temples, and uh, private individuals. Right. There was also a special arrangement for land called the Ilku. Ilku. The Ilku. So then you don't own the land, but you can use the land in return for performing a service to the state. Mm. This is not only a military service. It could also be stuff they use their military for, like road building, repairing canals and stuff like that. Right. And you probably had to give some of the, you paid tax on the crops that you grew on your land. Come again. I said I would imagine you would pay tax on the crops that you used on the land too, right? I think so, but I'm not entirely sure. You'd have to pay. like You'd have to give them, if you're growing wheat, you'd give some per- percentage of your field. And if you're growing something else, you know. Yes, I believe so. This Ilku thing is contested between scholars today. A few scholars believe that Ilku is not tied to land, but tied to actually being a citizen in Assyria. Hmm. So that you automatically, by being a citizen, you have to perform these services. Probably a little bit of both. Most scholars believe it's the land. It's probably a little bit of both. Right. Over you know, over generations, terms sort of change. Be, you know, you, how you use it. It started as the land, and then if you don't even have a land, they probably made you use it. You know, we're required to do service. I was doing some, some of my research for the next one we do. There's a, a lot of the... Um, the people were very important. You could see, like, raids were meant to go and grab some people. And um, people wanted to escape. Like, say the Assyrians grabbed them or moved them. They wanted to escape back to where they went. And they didn't want them to go. It's almost kind of like, you know, the old communist things where they don't want them to leave because they needed them to do the work. Yes, the moving of people is an integral part of the empire. Right. It is also possible that the Ilku were originally meant for land, but when the empire grew, they expanded it. Yeah. So as, as when the empire was big, you had a lot of people that didn't have to work on land, but perform other services for the empire. And those the Ilku maybe was expanded to ah. include them. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense for sure. So when trading 
What did the Assyrians want? Yeah, what did they want? There's no money. They have all these animals and the food and they have some stone they can build houses from. And of course they have a brick, bricks made from mud. Mm-hmm. What would they want? Wine. Oh, they have wine, but maybe better, better wine. wine. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that, that's one of the imports, better wine. What else? If, I mean, we... Oh, we, we talked so much about one of their imports. Um, horses. Yes, horses. Also camels. Oh, yeah. Remember when Ashurbanipal got all the camels and there were so many camels that they were people were using a camel for... They'd use a camel to buy a beer. <laughs> yes. They also wanted metals. Oh, like, oh, like oh, tin probably and copper. And now I'm starting to wonder where the iron come from, because I know they have, they have more iron than most people. Yeah, well, it's also the trees when it comes to iron, cause, and they were up, butted up against the mountains there, Urartu, so trees were very important. So you need um, to make charcoal they to did, make the iron, yeah, they so did you need to burn timber. a lot of trees. Yeah, but they wanted to control. So that's the thing, they wanted to control all these trade routes, right? I think the best timber came from Syria. Yes. And in Elam and up in Iraq too, there was, but yes, and Syria had a lot, had the good timber too, but it was a little farther away in the beginning of the empire. Mm. They also imported uh, precious stones, ivory, of course, Mm -hmm. aromatics, like perfume. That's always, that's been forever. I mean, that's how the new world got found, right? Oh yeah. We're looking for that stuff. One very controversial import that uh, the scholars cannot agree on is that possibly they imported silk from China. Really? There were a lot of middlemen on the Silk Road, but the Silk Road was a thing. I would definitely think that they've seen silk, you know, how popular it was and how easy it was to get. I'm sure you're right. They've definitely had some silk. Even if they had not seen silk, uh, imagine uh, some trader from the Afghanistan area or something reaching this place with silk. They would get a lot for it. Oh, for sure. That's how it would get. That's how it got there. Eventually, it made its way to Rome in the Roman days. But for sure, I would definitely think the Assyrians had some silk. Even if there's no evidence, like, you know, archaeological of it, I'm sure they had some. So what do you think they exported to get all this stuff? Um, they just went and took it. (laughs) (laughs) I think they exported, um, some of their agricultural products, I would think. They mostly needed the agricultural products to feed all the Assyrians. They were not Babylonia or Egypt. They didn't have an excess of food. All right, let me take another stab at it then. Um, how about iron? They wanted iron for themselves. Bastards. All right, I get three guesses. Yes. Mm. This is this one is hard. I'm sitting here in my fish coat, so I'll say fish. <laughs> <laughs> so they did not export fish. <laughs> they were actually quite good uh, craftsmen, so they oh. manufactured stuff, mostly textiles. They're British. That's the that is that's the core of capitalism. You bring in the resources from outside. The periphery of empire, manufacture the goods and sell them to the people outside. That's, that is the epitome of capitalism. They were also pretty good at exporting what they imported. 
So they were traders. And they were located as this, at this fantastic crossroad for the trade mm-hmm. routes. So they took their tolls, they bought something cheap and sold it expensive. Yeah. So you have to go through Assyria pretty much to reach Babylonia to come from the north. And Absolutely. you can also reach the Persian Gulf or the Mediterranean through Assyria. That's right. And then they were sort of on the top there. They were able to, kind of like a puppet master almost. If you see, you know, they could control this, the rivers here, and then they controlled the Levant. And then oh, they even finally controlled Egypt for a little bit. And we know that the Assyrians loved to document stuff. Mm-hmm. Almost as much as the Babylonians. But there is a lack of cuneiform documentation for trade. And we believe mm. that the reason is that a lot of this trade was outsourced to Arameans, Phoenicians, and Arabs, and others. Mm. That makes sense. That they weren't very good at writing in cuneiform. Right, and they would have been on paper anyway, so we'd have lost it. Yes. So there was a lot of profit coming into the Assyrian state from taxes and tolls on all mm-hmm. foreign traders as well. Yeah. I just mentioned that they were good craftsmen, but they were not craftsmen in the medieval sense. So right. crafts were centralized to palaces, temples, and large estates. That's where they manufactured them, you mean? Yes. Uh, so there wasn't like little cottage industries? No, it was very centralized by the state. And the crown controlled the raw materials, sent the raw materials to the craftsmen. Thus, it was good to have them in the palace. Ah. And then the craftsmen delivered the finished products. And they got food and housing from the state. Now that's the opposite of capitalism. <laughs> oh, it sounds like the Soviet Union. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it's definitely the, they definitely, you want to, you want to be the manufacturer. I mean, that's how the British, right? They were the shopkeeper. They called them the shopkeeper of the world when they had their empire. They, they made textiles and then they traded, like you said. But this system with uh, like craftsmen collectives, that uh, broke down when the empire grew large. Uh-huh. So they changed it and implemented a craftsman contract where you could repay the crown for the raw materials in other ways. Hmm. And this scaled a lot better. You know, I mean, for the, they, they were just make, inventing all this stuff. You know, it's really the first time I could say this. They really run it like a business. They do. And they are, they are very businesslike compared to other people's. Absolutely. Yes, look look at the Greeks going around thinking about philosophy and the statecraft, whereas the Assyrians are just war and trade. <laughs> and like, you know, um, I mean, I feel like their um, the reasoning was to keep chaos away, you know, just stability, conservative, like you say. But even in the largest empire, all the wealth is in the heartland. Mm-hmm. Because the provinces... And the tributary states, they are taxed, money's flowing from them to the Assyrian heartland. Right. And we know about the tributes paid annually. You have to come to the Assyrian king and parade in front of him with all the stuff you're going to give him. Amazing. And if you don't show up for your annual tribute, we know what happens. Yeah, you've never seen heard from again. When we talk about the intelligence, you'll find out that... that that act of bringing the tribute was also part of intelligence gathering. That's one of the reasons they had to come. They had to come and um, 
check on the health of the king. Bring your tribute, you know, show your face, kind of be like, what's going on in your little place over there? And that wasn't always the king. It could be their, you know, trib- emissaries, but they had to you had to do your regular tribute and your give them your information. And they also had to renew their treaty oaths. Yep. And if they didn't, they would drink donkey urine. And, uh, of course, when the empire was large, people were complaining, like, why do I have to bring this cow from the pyramids to Nineveh? And this was sold with local collection centers in the provinces. All right. All the tributes went directly to the crown. Right. And then the crown distributed the wealth. A good way to keep control. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. And it probably depends. Yeah. So if it was a an actual imperial province, right, they would bring the, somebody, a vassal could bring it to the uh, to his imperial province, and then they would, the, the governors would get it to the king. Yes. They'd have to go check on the health of the king, too. Yes. And give their intelligence reports and give the money. And their oaths. Very mafia-like, you know? Very mafia-like. Well... A lot of valuable stuff was stolen on raids and campaigns. Mm. It all became the property of the crown. Mm. But then the crown rewarded people who were successful in the campaign. And of course, temples and provincial governors and spread spread out the wealth to make everyone happy. But you couldn't just take it yourself during the during the battle, during the raids. You had to. I'm sure you could take like small stuff, but if you yeah, right. try to steal gold or uh, valuable jewelry or something, then uh, things will not end well for you. Yeah, you know what? It, rem- it reminds me of um, the Book of Joshua because the Book of Joshua just so reminds me of Assyrian campaigns. Totally, like they ripped off of them. And remember, if you remember the one part, he one of the guys takes too much stuff. He takes stuff, and it was supposed to be for the Lord. Like when you pillage the the Canaanites, you got to give it to the Lord, and he didn't. So they found out who it was, and they stoned him to death. And I would imagine it was a sort of a similar throughout the whole Near East at the time. You know, yeah, you gave it to your Lord, which is your king. Uh, regarding the temples, they were pretty much self sufficient. In the, the small Assyrian uh, Empire. But in the large empire, the temples couldn't keep up and were dependent on crown support as well. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't support them, the crown didn't support them. They were a habit of insurgency. That particular temple was in a pretty bad spot. But um, and we know that some Assyrian kings did demote certain temples and up- upgraded others. Mm-hmm. Let's look at the Assyrian deal so we're actually going to do a business deal and you have no coin. Okay. So it's not barter in the sense that I'm giving you five cows for 23 sheep. Although I'm sure that happened. But as soon as the empire started to grow, there, there were standards of exchange. Mm. So the most common thing traded were copper. But in the 7th century, they had moved very much to silver. And copper and silver were like, like ingots and certain weights of copper and silver. So it's kind of like proto-money when you think about it. Yes, they really need coins, but they did not invent them. Right, it's like, but it's, you know, it's, you have to weigh it, basically. A, a coin is basically supposed to be weighed already. And we note that in these exchanges that we have documented, 
there is often no metal involved, but they still value their items in silver or copper. And then the other part values their items in silver and copper, and then you reach an agreement. But there, there's no actually metal. There is no actual metal changing hands. That's like money. Oh yes, and things were not like that in uh, in Babylonia. Hmm. There you actually exchange metal. Yeah, because there that's actually like fiat money. Because there's no actual metal, but they're just saying it's this is what it would be, and then that's kind of what money is. What you agree it is. We know this because we see in the Babylonian records that. Uh, there are comments on the quality and form of the metal. So like this were copper, but it was kind of dirty. And I think this, there's something else in it. This is rather bad. Yeah, like that complaint letter even that was even older than that. I remember that episode you did. Oh, yes. So then you needed uh, some way to measure the silver or copper. So you had mm-hmm. to have standard weights and measures. Right. And uh, we have talked about this a little. Uh, maybe you remember the mina. No, the mina. Yeah, the royal mina is the standard of exchange. And then you have a mina, a local mina as well. You can have a mina of Kakemish, for example. Oh, that's the first I heard it. Oh, and that's the, that's a standard weight. Aha. So then that's the, like the money state, too. Yes, the state provided official weights. Right, so that's like money. <laughs> no, they were like a weight that you could weigh your metal against. Oh, so yeah, you know I know, that. I get it. I mean yes. it, but by them doing that, they're saying, okay, this is officially, because a weight is only a, you know, you make it up. I could say it's a pound, you could say it's a kilogram, right? It's whatever I say it is. I mean, it's obviously, it's it weighs what it weighs, but what I call that weight, you know what I mean? Sort of proto-money by the state saying, if it, this weighs this, and then that's this much silver, then... And of course, this is a very exploitable system. Mm. So you had to know in some way that this was an official weight sanctioned by the crown. Uh-huh. So now I'm going to tell you what, you what you should look for if somebody is trying to weigh something. So you oh, have to, they have to have an official weight. You know it's an official weight sanctioned by the king himself if it is in the shape of a duck or a lion. Uh. So you were like, my silver is equal in weight to these ducks uh-huh. or lions. There's also a cuneiform label on the weight telling you which king is sanctioning it. So it could be an old uh-huh. weight and what it actually weighs. That's pretty cool. I would love to see one of those. I got to go find something like that in a museum. I think they, they should be uh, available uh, somewhere because we have these. Oh, sure. I'm sure I can find it online. Yes. Yeah, for sure. That's we cool. have a lot of documentation of these business transactions. Even though we have lost a lot, there are still some. Yeah. They have been found mainly in palaces. So maybe we have lost the transactions that were made in other places. Yeah, right. They're in somebody's house and they're, you know, they're, they, must have had, they must have had some kind of offices, right? Some of these people? Oh, yes. Probably in the palace or in the provincial yeah, so if you're in the provincial palace and you were a trader, I guess you set up his office in the in the right in the, in that area. Things we found are credit lists, inventories, people keeping accounts, tax assessments. That is like how much am I actually going to pay in tax for all this? Yeah. Census lists, of course, you have to know your people. 
and a lot of different notes and memos concerning trade. Very organized. The Assyrian state never tried to fix or control prices. Hmm. It was a strict supply and demand. Hmm. That is somewhat uh, significant because I we have agree. a lot of attempts to fix and control prices in other uh, in other nations before or in in ancient times. Of course, and then and then here's these people who would try to control every other thing. And that was the reason the price of camels could plummet. I was thinking the same exact thing. They were. Uh, that's interesting. Some, some economists should do like a deep dive. It's interesting. It's also noteworthy that very few uh, documents detail the standard of living. So people don't brag about how they live in a sense. Thus, we don't really know what the standard of living was. But mm. really, surely it must have fluctuated with the success of the empire. Right, right. And it depends. In some from archaeology, you could tell it's a bigger, you know, who had a bigger house. But they probably didn't want to write too much about it. Just like today, you know, when you get to fly too close to the sun, you get your wings clipped. I don't think you'd want the Assyrian king to think you were doing many better than he was. <laughs> we have, a, we see clearly though that the outlying areas are much poorer than the heartland. Mm. Plus, they're taking all the stuff from them. And this concentration of wealth in the heartland of course, provides great strength and authority for the crown. Mm -hmm. And also, possibly, it made rebellions much more difficult. Yeah. Really, another aspect of why it's the first true empire. That's what an empire also does, you know? I mean, I know Sargon and Don and uh, Sumer had a sort of empire, but it wasn't as big and it didn't last as long. There is, of course, an upper limit for the heartland. Like, how much food can you provide? How many people can live in the heartland? Mm Mm-hmm. But we have few but some evidence of inflation, of an overall Mm. inflation, with the devaluation of silver by the time of Ashurbanipal because of his success when he was successful. Right, like the camel story. But this process of keeping the outlying areas poor also perhaps prevented further expansion. Yeah, I mean... We do see the democratic societies uh, actually worked out a lot better. I see a clear difference to the Roman Empire at its height because the Roman Empire worked to move power into the provinces by the yeah. uh, after Augustus. Yeah, when they they started figuring that out. Yes, you couldn't govern the whole. The, the Rep- Roman Republic had the problem that you actually had to physically be in Rome to govern it. Right. Right. And here is a somewhat similar situation that once the empire becomes huge, it takes a lot of time to get something done in an outlying area. I would imagine. (laughs) And of course, we have the uh, Iron Fist. All the violence from the Assyrian state. When you don't pay your tribute, you get visited by the royal army. Right. And very few softer techniques to manage outlying areas. They, 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 I have to say, from more, more and more research, they just weren't that loved. <laughs> and I think this is the greatest flaw in their economy, because the outlying areas, the provinces, they're all there just to supply the heartland. Mm-hmm. And eventually you will piss everyone off, and th- that will lead to the 
downfall of the empire spoiler <laughs> yeah well it's every empire it's every empire they do they suck it in from the outside and then they well well i think the romans were onto something on in the like the second century a.d when they had a, a extremely stable state and it kind of worked but then uh, there were plagues and wars and stuff yeah yeah, and then they try and to control bad like, emperors. Mm-hmm. Emperors don't. They have to have good emperors for a while. That's impossible. You always get a bad one. Oh, goddamn Commodus! <laughs> yeah, that, that was, it was Commodus. I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Commodus, Commodus. Now, now every president of the United States is the next Commodus. That's always the <laughs> Obama was the next Commodus. Trump is the next Commodus. I probably Biden. He's Commodus. Now, now I want to talk about Commodus, but uh, that's not <laughs> that's not what we are going to talk about here. No, but I, I love the way he it. wanted to. He he learned that uh, Julius Caesar had changed uh, the name of July to his name. Yeah, yeah. And then Augustus did the same thing, and Commodus then many years later was like, "Okay, I am greater than all of them. Let's change the name of all the months to Commodus." <laughs> But I said, won't, won't there be a problem with this? No, let's change it all. And by the way, let's change the name of all cities to Commodus as well. <laughs> so in the month of Commodus, I went to Commodus. <laughs> I wonder if there was a recent American president who would do that if he could. If he could. <laughs> no, I, I can't think of one. I can't either. Jimmy Carter. Bust, yeah, he was such a narcissist. Uh, I wanted to uh, speak a little about the hunt. Oh, yeah. I think I've already blamed the Assyrians for uh, exterminating the Mesopotamian lion. Um, yeah, I think you have. And we know that uh, they really like to depict themselves hunting lions. Mm-hmm. We saw they say Asher that keeps the chaos away. <laughs> yeah, we saw Asher Nasipal II strangle a lion with his one hand. Yeah, that's pretty tough. And of course, they wouldn't lie about that, would they? No, I mean, anybody could. I mean, an Assyrian king is obviously able to strangle a lion with one hand, probably his left hand. If we look at, I, I talked, I made a video for the YouTube channel about uh, Tiglath Pileser I, who was before our time, before 1000 BC, mm-hmm. who uh, talked about hunting dolphins. No, I gotta <laughs> look at that. But. Um, it is a common factor among warlike peoples in history that they do like hunting. Hunting is mm. like war in peacetime. Yeah. And the Assyrians were no better. They hunted animals and killed them for sport already in the Middle Assyrian Empire and probably even before that. I'm for sure. I mean, that's been a human thing, though. I mean, the Katahoyak, they had bullhorns on their walls, you know, like we have antlers on our walls around, you know. This makes me wonder if the Assyrians hadn't gone into this last great imperial phase, the Neo-Assyrian Empire, maybe they could have lasted much longer because it seems like they are exploding in a sense at the very end of their 1,000 years or more. That's a really good point. It actually happens to the hunts. The royal hunt becomes a national institution and it has many similarities to the annual campaign. Yeah. So now is the time to go to war. Now is the time to go hunting with the king. Yeah. And of course, the greatest prize is lions. Yeah. You were forbidden to kill a lion. Really? Unless you had the approval of the king. 
or unless you really had to kill the lion. But the, the king was very upset. He was the only one with the right to kill lions. Uh, it must, yeah, you'd have to ask, I guess, if there's lions terrorizing your province or something. I guess people were helping the king hunt lions, but he just said he killed them all. Right. So how would the... I know we have a lot of reliefs of the hunt, right? I know Ash, even Ashurbanipal liked to do the hunt. Of course he did. And uh, the hunt was uh, somewhat uh, religious as well. You ended it with a religious ceremony, the, the royal annual hunt. Especially for the gods Ninurta and Palil. They were the hunting deities. And they would do it out of a chariot, right? So he would get on his chariot and they would get the lion and they would... And then, of course, everybody could see him better as well. Right. But you can find lions all the time. And then when you don't find lions, it was the habit of the Assyrian king to hunt anything that moved. <laughs> Except humans. You didn't oh, hunt humans God. for sport. Thankfully. But we know that the Assyrian... Um, <laughs> the dolphins are a good example. But the Assyrian kings killed fish, birds, and of course any mammal they could find. But they were most honored in the lion and, of course, the elephant. Because elephants oh. are big. Would they bring them in and hunt the elephants? I know they, they would bring the lions in later on when they, you know, they would bring them somewhere. They would have sort of a closed area, right? And they would get the chariot and then they would hunt the lion. I wonder, elephants, wow. Possible. Imagine the if you were an up-and-coming Assyrian noble and you could get an elephant for the royal hunt, you would probably oh, do that. Yeah. Ah, I gotcha. Interesting. So there were people capturing animals and bringing them to Assyria for the purposes of the royal hunt. Oh, so you cool. got paid for animals that the king could hunt. I wonder if the king was informed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, by some chance there's a lion right outside our door. <laughs> you better go get him. You said you were a good hunter. <laughs> like, it was like, a, like the ancient Ace Ventura. You know, Ace Ventura. <laughs> Did you see the movie Ace Ventura with um, Jim Carrey? It was the, with the animals. Oh, yes. He, you know, he had to go capture this ancient crazy guy. would capture all these crazy animals and bring them to the king of Assyria. I guess it's like an ancient bullfight, but with lions. and. But um, imagine this situation. You, you are the Assyrian king, and you are, you are planned for an evening in the harem with your eight favorite wives. And then some idiot shows up telling you, oh, by a chance, there's a lion right outside. <laughs> what do you do? Well, if you're so virile like him and you could have eight wives just for the night, you'd probably go out and you kill them with your bare hands and you go in and make love to all your wives. Uh, no, what they did was like, okay, capture the lion and then we'll hunt it later. Ah. Which led to zoological gardens and the uh -huh. study of wild animals. Nice. And remember, there is one animal in particular that they are not prone to killing. Horses. Monkeys. Oh, that was nice of them. Yes, so monkeys were kept as pets. And there was uh, these zoological gardens. You could display the wild animals to the people. I mean, that's probably is the hanging gardens of Babylon, too, that they thought of, you know. The Assyrians, I really, we've discussed this before, but... If there was one in Babylon, there was one in Assyria, too. And and I think I've said this before, too. Those gardens, they, they that's sort of like um, the Garden of Eden was like that. You walk in your garden with your king and your, you know, your lord. Very Assyrian. Very cool that there was monkeys in them, though. They did manage to uh, 
exterminate elephants from the area as well. Yeah. I wonder what the cages were like. Like, you know, like we think of cages that we see, you know, in these, I guess they were just be brick, big brick walls. Yeah. That would keep the animals in. Or perhaps wood. Yeah. Yeah. You would think, how about that? Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. That would be. We only have information about the royal hunts, but we assume that uh, most Assyrian males hunted for hmm. sport. But of course, they kept clear of the lions and elephants. Yeah, yeah. There was probably deer and things like that. Was there deer? What kind of like? I would expect there were deer. Yeah. Uh, we also know that, of course, the, the chariot was the most popular way of hunting for the king. But we also have depictions of the king stalking animals, mm. ambushing animals. And there seems to be, a, how do you say this in English, hunting party stampeding against animals, driving the animals towards oh, the king. Oh, yeah, driving them, yeah, Who was yeah. probably in a chariot, ready with his bow and arrow. Yeah, yeah. How about boars? Have you ever heard anything about them hunting yes. wild boars? There were boars. Also a wild bull. Oh. They didn't last long. <laughs> no. No, but still, that's pretty late for there to be wild bull, 600 BC, you know? Yes, but there were bison in America much longer. <laughs> they didn't have uh, Ashurnasipal II. Yeah, they sort of had a different culture. They sort of kept, you know, they didn't also clear cut the forest of that, Syria. That's about all I had today. <laughs> so let's move on to the intelligence service. Yeah, we're going to do that next time, right? All right. So I wanted to say that lately I've been getting some more messages from our listeners, and I I like that. I'm kind of flattered. I don't. I, sometimes I wonder if anybody's listening, right? But then when you hear messages, I mean, I know they are. We see them. But when you get some messages and they're positive, I, I appreciate it. And if you have any suggestions or questions, if I messed anything up, please, you know, message me on Facebook on the, on the page. I've been trying to keep the page. Um, I, I, I just share interesting history uh, articles and I try to keep them in our in our time frame and stuff that interests me because I am interested in the prehistory. So I have I have left Facebook myself, but uh, if you want to reach me in particular, you can always send a message to Bernie, or my assistant is also looking at the Fan of History Facebook. Yes. And then Dan will tell you about our Patreon page. Yes, we do uh, do need uh, some money to keep going, and you can help us by becoming a patron at Patreon. Search for Fan of History, and then you make a contribution per episode. It's a mutual agreement, so if we don't make episodes, you don't pay anything. However, you money is drawn the month after the episode was published. So some people think that we money is charged even though we made no episode, but it's for last month's episode. Yes, that's to make sure it's been published and not taken down and cancelled for any reason because we said something bad. We do have 16 patrons right now, and we are very thankful for that. But we do need a couple more. That would be awesome. I would love to get this program called the script for editing. And it's it could take every time I say um or you know, and I could find every single one and wow. take them out. That would be useful. <laughs> it would be. But it's like a monthly subscription. Okay. Let's uh, talk uh, right. intelligence services next time. Yeah. All right. Next time, we'll talk to you then. Bye-bye. Thanks, Dan. Cheers. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time.